Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Have you ever wondered what it is like to work inside a prison? Well, Ted Conover, a nonfiction writer, did. So he went to the New York Department of Corrections to ask if he could shadow a new trainee recruit at the New York State Corrections Academy. His request was quickly turned down. Ted Conover believes that if you have the opportunity to participate in somebody else's world, you can learn much more about that world than you might by merely asking about it. And he decided to apply for a job as a prison officer. As a result of his training and then working at Sing Sing Prison in New York, he wrote a book that is now in paperback entitled New Jack, guarding at Sing Sing. New Jack is the slang term for a new prison guard. Ted Conover and I visited by phone to talk about some of the stories of his training to be a prison correctional officer and his work for almost a year at Sing Sing Prison. In this, the second of a two-part series of telephone interviews with Ted Conover, we talk about his experiences as a correctional officer how it personally affected him, and what he believes ought to be done to address what he sees as some of the problems in our nation's prison system. I began by asking him why the new trainees are sent to Sing Sing, the toughest of the New York State prisons. It really is counterintuitive that the uh, least experienced guy should go to the most troubled maximum security place, but it's sort of a result of the civil service rules that let more senior officers choose their posting. Uh, the more desirable prisons, from a labor point of view, are uh, places in upstate New York like Attica or, or Clinton, where uh, you know uh, that are generally closer to the officers' homes. Most officers come from small town. America, uh, the job doesn't pay real well, and you can live a lot better in the country where you're from. So for most of them, being at Sing Sing means they're going to spend every cent they have on, on an apartment, and often they'll triple, quadruple up, you know, for a one-bedroom or something. And then uh, they want to transfer out as soon as they can. So there's this constant flow of rookies through there, most of whom leave within a, a matter of weeks or months, and it's it's bad management. Uh, you know, constancy in a school setting, as everyone knows, uh, substitutes have a hard time in a school. Well, just imagine that same scenario with, uh, you know, a huge classroom of 100 students, um, all of, or most of them with violent tendencies, and a new teacher every few days. That's That's pretty much what you've got at Sing Sing. And it's uh, it's a miracle there's not more trouble there. Don't you think that the uh, Department of Corrections is aware of this and might want to do something about it? Well, I, I'm i sure they're aware of it, but, you know, the union is a, <clears throat> a strong player in this whole thing, and the union is powerful. I generally think the union is a, a positive influence in work conditions, but if you're a new guy, the union is not your friend. Uh I think new guys should be paired with senior officers. There should be a sort of uh, 
apprentice kind of thing where there's a person you can ask questions of during the year, someone who's checking in on you to make sure you're not flipping out or, uh, you know, taking things too hard. Uh, they don't do that, and, and uh, it's, it's a mistake, and it's, it's, it's a mistake that has been going on for years, you know. Uh, as you get seniority, you get away from the inmates, and that's not how it should be. Is there any kind of um, level of protection for people who take things too hard or who flip out the the um, officers? Do you mean sort of a support by the system, like a yes. sling? There is, but what's interesting is, even though we were told, you know, here's this guy, a representative at the prison of, I think it's called the Family Protection Unit or something, you know, if you're if you if you're worried about your drinking or you you smacked your spouse last weekend and you're supposed to go to this guy, uh, but nobody does. And one reason is that it's a very macho environment. Um, you don't want people to know if you're having problems. You don't want other officers to doubt that you're going to be there for them if they need you and push comes to shove. Uh, prison, you know, is a very small world. Inmates so, you know, I think through officers with loose lips, inmates learn when particular officers are having problems, you know. If you're going through a divorce, you don't want the inmates to know. So a lot of officers keep it, they, you know, they keep it too close to the chest, and uh, they don't share their distress, and it's it's a big problem. Can you talk about the term correctional officer? Um, is that a euphemism? Well, I believe it is, along with correctional facility for prison or superintendent for warden. You know, there was a, a moment in the early 70s when there seemed to be a sort of social consensus that the prisons weren't doing their job at, at rehab. And so to underscore prison's potential to sort of turn lives around, there was this vast renaming program. You know, Sing Sing Prison became... Sing Sing, I think it actually became Austin Correctional Facility. Uh, they wanted to get rid of the whole stigma and notoriety of the old way of doing things. And across the country, people in the prison business, uh, there was an emphasis on being more professional. And, and so the renaming was part of this whole drive to train officers better and have higher standards of accountability and get better pay. That's really the bottom line, I think. Um, but over time, these ideals have dwindled away to practically nothing. I mean, one of our trainers at the academy told us in a low voice, he said, you know, you're, you're going to be called CO, but anyone in the system can tell you, you are, you are a warehouser of human beings. That is your job to run the warehouse. Another, another officer who trained us at Sing Sing, the last day he said, this is like our charge for battle, he says, you the zookeeper now go run the zoo and that's that's how the guys on the on the ground feel about it so you know maybe the title makes some people feel a little better about the job but um no our prisons have completely lost sight of any um any rehabilitative mission well ted i'd like you to uh shift your thoughts here for a minute and talk about um the large number of prisons that are being built throughout the United States and uh, the employment that that means 
and the political influence that the political action committees of the um, prison unions have. Well, sure. As many of your listeners are no doubt aware, there's been an unprecedented prison boom in the United States over the last 27, 28 years. It, it dates really from the imposition of what are known as Rockefeller drug laws, Rockefeller-era drug laws. These were put into place in New York to keep judges from being soft on uh, people convicted of drug crimes. They have mandatory sentencing, and, and the sentences are severe. I, you know, in New York, um, two ounces of, of cocaine uh, gets you 10 or at least 50, or up to 15 years, even longer in some cases, uh, even for a first offense. So the, the penalties are extremely harsh. They disproportionately affect young black men, and they have been behind a boom in in uh, what's you know what's been called the prison industrial complex. And I don't think it's an exaggeration to call it that. Uh, the prisoner population in the country has uh, quadrupled to about almost two million people, which is one out of every hundred forty Americans. There's no democracy with any number near that uh, proportion of incarcerated citizens. And most of the prisons have been built in depressed rural areas of the country, which makes sense uh, from a certain perspective, because a prison is an economic development opportunity, you know. Um, People who build it will make money. People who work there, you know, small towns clamor for prisons, because uh, it's either that or, or disappear. But it's brought along many unintended consequences. Uh, you know, uh, the increasing racial character of incarceration is one, which I mentioned before. Officers are almost all white. Inmates are almost all minority. Um, uh, between inmate groups, there's, you know, a lot of racial antagonism, too. And you remember James Byrd, who was dragged to death behind the pickup in, in Texas. The people who killed him had all joined a white supremacist gang in prison. So prison clearly spreads this kind of thing outside as well. Um, and then just the nature of prison work is that it causes a lot of stress to families. It's, it's shift labor. Often you'll have to do double shifts, mandatory shifts, um, this is hard on families, and the stress of the job is hard on families. Uh, it is not um, an ideal employment, and uh, you know maybe we've saved some money by putting these prisons far from the cities where the inmates come from, but it makes it harder for most of them to keep a connection with their family. You know, if the prison's eight hours away, six hours away on a bus, how often are your wife and kids going to come visit? Um, most inmates stop getting visits after three years. And that's kind of tragic, because uh, that's one thing that everyone knows is important if they're going to you know, get any kind of support when they get released. It's, they need their connections, and they need their family, and, and they lose that in prison. From your experience, uh, do you have any ideas on what it is in the American culture that's uh, resulted in... Uh, this high number of people being incarcerated and the constant uh, building of new prisons? It's hard to identify in a, in a few sentences. You know, uh, we're a country that uh, believes in individual responsibility. 
we tend to ascribe um, criminal activity to a, a failure of individual responsibility uh, and to a failure of the in, of of a particular person, not not a uh, failure of the society. You know, I, I found in Sing Sing, I had an inmate whose nephew was in the cell six doors down. Uh, there was a father who one day walked into the mess hall and found his son uh, in prison. He hadn't even seen his son in, in 15 years. Now, those people come from the ghetto. Um, if I came from the ghetto, uh, I might be in that kind of situation. So as Americans, I think we're, we're not facing up to the to the sort of racial character of incarceration and, and the economic character. Uh, I also think we, we are not entirely proud of our prisons because we put them so far out of sight and out of mind. You know, we love police shows that show criminals getting apprehended. We love trials. Look at court TV, all trials. But when the guys are let out of the courtroom, that's the most, you know, most of us are not going to think about them anymore. And the system's set up that way. And I think that stigma of being the warehouser is internalized by a lot of officers and, and does them a lot of damage. You know, it's a shameful kind of job. We don't want to think about it. We want them to go away. If there was another Australia in the world, I'm sure we, we would have sent um, many of them there by now. And when you look at Europe, you see how... Uh, they do a lot to try to keep people out of prison, you know, through drug treatment or some sort of diversion or employment or training programs. All these things are cheaper than incarceration, which is hugely expensive, costs $40 billion a year in our country. I mean, Corrections is the second largest employer in New York State after Verizon Corporation, and other states have similar uh, budgets. So, no, I think, you know, the, the time has, has come to to uh, ask ourselves, why haven't we made much progress in the last 170 years since Sing Sing was built as a penitentiary? Why haven't we come up with ideas for, for treating people? How do you answer that question as to why? Well, as I was saying, I think we, we'd rather not think about it. Um, we don't have a good solution in mind, and, and inmates, you know, don't have much of a constituency. Uh, there's, you know, they're all disenfranchised. You don't earn many points in American politics by by uh, sticking up for uh, the underclass. And, uh, you know, I, maybe I'm sounding uh, excessively sort of inmate sympathetic to some of your listeners. I, I'm not. I, I met <clears throat> many, many inmates who, for whom there is no place but prison. I mean, there were so many uh, frightening and depraved people in there that I am so glad uh, do not live on my street or anywhere I will come into contact with them. Um, I'm realistic about that. On the other hand, I think every officer would admit there's people in prison where you just think, man, if that guy had had a different kind of chance, he, he wouldn't be here. And in fact, maybe it's not too late for him. You you know, as the officer, you're sort of civilization's last representative. You you meet these people one on one, and you can just see that we we maybe have given up too fast on some of these guys. And uh, so I don't know. I think it would help the whole system. It would help the morale of corrections, certainly, which is experiencing you know huge 
attrition. Most most new recruits uh, quit in the first year. If the job had something good about it, you know, where you could actually think, well, maybe I did that guy a little good today. I, I you know, I did some counseling as well as the security duties that uh, officers have now. Um, you know, there's a lot of things we could do to to improve the system. I'd like to take a moment and tell our listeners that this week we're talking with Ted Conover who trained and then worked for about a year as a correctional officer slash prison guard at Sing Sing Prison up the river from New York City. He recently wrote a book called New Jack, the slang term for a new correctional officer. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Ted, uh, from time to time, uh, you hear stories about prison rape and victimization of young new prisoners. Yeah. Uh, Tell us about that, your observations. Well, sure. It certainly does happen. Um, But I don't think it's like in the movies. Uh, You know, I don't think there's a prison movie that doesn't have a rape. But if you've noticed, it's almost always the white guy. In fact, a sort of upper middle-class white guy in most cases. Uh, Sort of a stand-in, I think, for the viewer. Look at Oz, where it's the lawyer who's raped by the white supremacist. Um, American Me, it's the son of the rich Italian gangster. Uh, Shawshank Redemption, Tim Robbins. I mean, it goes on and on. Midnight Express, it's the the nice American guy who's caught smuggling heroin. Um, In reality, I don't think white guys are singled out. I, uh, inmates are victimized. There's been some celebrated cases in California where it's been shown the officers even set it up. But I think that those are exceptions to the rule. I think most officers these days truly consider part of their job to be protecting inmates from each other. Uh, you know, inmates fear each other much more than they do officers. Uh, Inmates are stabbed every day in Sing Sing, practically. I was very interested in the sex question because I knew my friends would be. Everyone's going to ask me, so, you know, did you ever see anybody getting it? And uh, are there punks and protectors, this whole thing? And, and I only came upon one case the whole year I was there where I could actually document it having happened to somebody. An older inmate said, you know, Conover, this used to happen. Um... But in the old days, inmates weren't so quick to give up on their, they weren't so quick to give up their attackers. A guy who got raped would just never dare to talk about it. Uh, the, these days, that's not true. And these days, uh, protective custody is a big deal in prison. If you don't get it, inmates can, can uh, sue the system. And I've got to say, where I worked is not like the movies where there's a... Uh, a broom closet here, a staircase there, you know, these convenient, unsupervised spaces where this stuff can go on. It's, it, it's hard to find any privacy in a prison, and uh, I think the most common kind of sex is consensual, uh, and even that is hard for inmates to accomplish. Um, so, of course, it happens, uh, but I, I'm not sure it's, it's the, uh, the epidemic that some people would have you think. Ted, the the stress of the job on on families is a common theme throughout your book, and and you mentioned it several times in our conversations. How did that manifest itself in your personal life? It's funny. I thought, you know, being 
first a writer and second a correction officer in a certain sense. I mean, this year, I uh, the the writer thing often faded. I it's a job that requires your full attention. I would go whole days without taking any notes just because I was under so many demands. I thought I'd be immune from the uh, the you know the family stress thing. I thought more than these, you know, I'm going to be able to do my eight and leave it at the gate, which is what officers tell you to do. Were you right in your anticipation? No, I was wrong. I, uh, uh, after a few months, I started having big arguments with my wife. I had, um, I had tried to protect her from some of the uh, ugly things I saw during the day. I didn't want to bring it home to the family. Uh, she said I became robotic as a result of this, and, and she felt she didn't know me. And then my kids, um, my daughter was just three months old when I started this job. My son was two years older than that. And there'd be nights where I was putting them to bed. You know, my wife works full time. This is a stressful thing for any family. But an officer comes home. He's been disrespected during the day, wants to be respected at home. The kids get crazy at night. I remember on this particular night, it took me an hour to get my daughter to go to sleep in her crib. And my son starts running and jumping and acting crazy and I said stop and he wouldn't listen I spanked him for the first time in his life that was something my wife and I had uh, decided we wouldn't do I amazed myself I I frightened myself when I did that his crying woke up his sister who stands up in her crib and as she's looking at me through the slats you know I thought it's the same thing I see all day long she looks like an inmate and and I knew then that I that I'd failed to keep my home life separate, and that um, uh, I had to face up to this myself. And and I'm lucky, I think, that I, uh, you know, I've been able to talk about it a lot with my wife since and make amends. But uh, no, uh, it very much affected me. Ted, if you knew when you started uh, this adventure what you know now, would you do it again? I guess I would. Barry, just because even on the hard days, even on the boring days, I would always come home with some amazing insight, or I'd seen something, or I'd learned something that none of my friends know. And and that was my goal all along, to be able to paint this unknown world for for the reader. And uh, so, yeah, it was pretty agonizing. It was excruciating. I'm so grateful it's not my work. Uh, in the long term, but you know, the res- it let me write uh, the best book I've written yet. I think, and uh, and I think the book's making a difference, and and so I guess I'd say yes. So, how then have your impressions changed and your evaluations changed uh, since you left Sing Sing several years ago? Well, in certain ways, I'm a little more hard hard-nosed and, and suspicious, oddly enough. Uh, you know, I ride. I live in New York City. I ride the subway. I'm always looking for former inmates, and I've seen three so far. Two of them recognized me, and we nodded. Uh, you know, there's, I don't have any ongoing uh, feud with any inmate. I'm not worried about that. But I am more willing to believe in people's capacity to do bad things, not just inmates, but people who would not characteristically be inmates. I I feel like I have a fuller vision of human potential, and it's not all good. Um, 
On the other hand, I, uh, I make more allowances for law enforcement officers. Uh, the jobs are hard. At the same time, I feel more strongly than ever that, that a huge weakness of, of, of our law enforcement people is they won't turn out their bad apples, you know. Uh, the culture of law enforcement really provides for um, covering up for the, the bad apples that are there, and that's a, an endemic problem. And I, uh, uh, I, I feel strongly that, you know, we need more leadership in that area. Uh, and what else? I, I'm a reformer. I, I admit it. I, I've seen prison on the inside, and, and I uh, myself have participated in the punishment of people, and um, I know we can do better. We, we spend so much money that it's, it's kind of a scandal that we don't try to do better. Ted, in terms of doing better, what do you see as uh, appropriate in terms of education for society or within a prison system? Well, I think, uh, you know, prisons have pretty much cut out their education functions. Uh, most prisons offer courses that get you up to a GED, but I think it's been shown that the single most empowering thing you can give an inmate is, is some education, uh, sort of post-high school, you know, even offer the, the chance of some sort of a degree, an associate's degree or something like that. And there's always political resistance because people don't want to see inmates get a free education. But I think it's, it's so much in society's interest that they do. And I think officers who rightly feel you know, they should get the same benefit, should indeed get the same benefit. They should be allowed to uh, attend these these courses off-duty, and this will be seen as sort of a heretical idea by a lot of them, but uh, I don't see why not. I think uh, to be in the same classroom, uh, officers and inmates will, would humanize prisons. And I think, in a you know, a different way, we define our officers' role so strictly in this country. We We don't need to draw this line between security and helpful personnel. You know, officers used to teach classes when the teachers didn't show up. They don't do that now. And and that's a simple thing that would make a lot of difference. Well, Ted, I want to thank you again for joining us on Radio Curious. And before we close, I'd like you to tell us about an interesting book that you've read lately. Hmm. I just finished a new book by the novelist Dennis Johnson. It's called Seek, and it's not fiction like he normally writes. It's collections of nonfiction, and he's very talented and, and pushes nonfiction in new directions, which I'm, I'm interested in doing, too. So uh, uh, it's a pretty good book. Ted Conover, author of New Jack, Guarding at Sing Sing, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. My pleasure. Thank you, Barry. Ted Conover is the author of New Jack, Guarding at Sing Sing. The book he recommends is Seek, Report from the Edges of America and Beyond by Dennis Johnson. Copies of this and other editions of Radio Curious can be found on our website, www.radiocurious.org. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. 
The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.